0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 120, July 3rd to July 9th, 1863. Last week, we had a two-part affair covering Day 1 and Day 2 at Gettysburg. This week, we're going to cover Day 3 in its entirety. Of course, Day 3 at Gettysburg is going to be much more than just Pickett's Charge, as we are going to find out. Very quickly, though, just a quick reminder, we do have Patreon content, and it's going to be a review of the movie Gettysburg. So if you want to pair up how that movie stacks against our narrative episodes here, that certainly is an option. Of course, Gettysburg, known for a couple of things, obviously depicting Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the 20th Maine on the second day. And then, of course, Pickett's Charge, On the third day. So we can talk about both of those events in the review and can kind of follow along very nice companion to our narrative episodes. And those proceeds, of course, go toward the upkeep of the show. They're greatly appreciated. So let's go ahead and set the stage. The Union troops are still holding their lines relatively that they had occupied on the morning of the second. It is debatable to say whether they really lost ground. The Confederates were still around the Rose Farm and the Peach Orchard, but Sickles had advanced unwisely to these locations. Neither general had wanted to fight this battle at Gettysburg, it should be pointed out. We need to understand how both of these commanders will make their decision. First, we will look at Lee. Lee. In many sources, there is a lot of emphasis placed on the fact that Longstreet does not agree with the battle plan set by Lee. Moving around the Union Army and cutting them off from Washington would force Meade to fight on a battlefield of their choosing. Now, is that a practical plan? Maybe, maybe not. A better plan may have been to move around onto the Baltimore Pike and cut the Army of the Potomac off from their supplies. Overall, Lee is not going to be interested in disengaging the enemy. I would throw out the argument that there have been pretty heavy casualties on both sides that would lead the respective commanders to wish to avoid ceding the field to the enemy. There have been many battles in the East so far where the Confederate Army especially has had to leave the field. And obviously, we talked about how there's an honor factor there, even if it's perceived that they had a better go of it during the battle. If they don't hold the field at the end then it's definitely going to be a blow to the honor of the soldiers who fought there. No, the attack would continue on the third day, and it would be Pickett's division thrown into the fight. Does Longstreet hamstring the assault on purpose? Probably not. But will Hill and Longstreet turn their poor performances around? That is yet to be seen. On the night of the second, Meade would actually call a council of war, a sharp contrast with his opponent. Actually, Meade is going to get criticism for having too many councils, apparently showing that he did not know what to do. At Gettysburg, his headquarters were right off of Cemetery Ridge at the Widow Lester House. Gathered in the room were several generals, representative of the various army corps. We do, of course, have an account of this meeting. Here we are, now what is the best thing to do? It soon became evident that everybody was in favor of remaining where we were and giving battle there. General Meade himself said very little, except now and then to make some comment, but I cannot recall that he expressed any decided opinion upon any point, preferring apparently to listen to the conversation. After the discussion had lasted some time, Butterfield suggested that it would perhaps be well to formulate the question to be asked, and General Meade, assenting, he took a piece of paper on which he had been making some memoranda, and wrote down a question. What he had done, he read it off and formally proposed to the council." I have never been a member of a Council of War before, nor have I been since, and not feel very confident I was properly a member of this one, but I engaged in the discussion and found myself, Warren being asleep, the junior member in it. By the custom of war, the junior members vote first, as on a court-martial, and when Butterfield read off his question, the substance of which was, should the army remain in its present position or take up some other, he addressed himself first to me for an answer, to say stay and fight. Was to ignore the objections made by general newton and i therefore answered somewhat in this way remain here and make such correction in our position as may be deemed necessary but take no step which even looks like a retreat this account is actually coming from john gibbon of course so he is the junior officer now in this council the question was put to each member and his answer taken down and when it came to newton who was the first in rank he voted in pretty much the same way as i did and we had some playful sparring as to whether he agreed with me or I with him. The rest voted to remain. The next question written by Butterfield was, should the army attack or wait the attack of the enemy? I voted not to attack, and all the others, substantially, the same way. And on the third question, how long shall we wait? I voted until Lee moved. The answers to this last question showed the only material variation in opinion of the members. When the voting was over General Meade said quietly but decidedly such then in the decision and certainly said nothing which produced a doubt in my mind as to his being perfectly in accord with the members of the council. Several times during the sitting of the council reports were brought to General Meade and now and then we could hear heavy firing going on over on the right of our line. It took occasion before leaving to say to General Meade that his staff officer had regularly summoned me as a corps commander to the council although I had some doubts about being present. He answered pleasantly. That's all right. I wanted you here. Before I left the house, Meade remarked to me, which surprised me a good deal, especially when I look back upon the occurrence of the next day. By reference to the votes in council, it will be seen that the majority of the members were in favor of acting on the defensive and awaiting the action of Lee. In referring to the matter just as the council broke up, Meade said to me, "If Lee attacks tomorrow, it will be in your front." I asked him why he thought so, and he replied, because he has made attacks on both our flanks and failed, and if he concludes to try it again, it will be our center. I expressed the hope that he would, and told General Meade with confidence that if he did, we would defeat him. Importantly, the BMI had interrogated the prisoners taken in the first two days and concluded that the only troops not used were going to be that of Pickett's division. It is rather interesting that the BMI does have a very accurate troop strength prior to Chancellorsville, And they also have a very accurate account of the Confederate troops on the third day at Gettysburg. Now, Gibbon is leading the Second Corps, and he's going to, as mentioned from our quote here, think that Lee is going to try the center. And it was a very logical conclusion that he was going to try the center for the reasons given. He had tried the flanks, and they had both failed. It should also be pointed out that Rand's right almost succeeds Really, on the second day of breaking the center, so obviously a little bit more weight, a little bit more pressure might break the Union line. Now, I have a it pointed out in a couple of sources that Meade is unique in pulling troops from various corps to move where needed. One might argue that this practice was born out of necessity caused by Sickles, but it is still the first time a commander really provides such support. Sedgwick and the 6th Corps had arrived and could give additional support, but crucially, many of the units were intermingled meaning that offensive action was going to be difficult. This is why it was going to be preferable to receive an attack, or at least wait and see what Lee does. Let's talk briefly about the stigma that surrounds Pickett's Charge. If you are casual with your Civil War history, or maybe even just learning, you have probably heard of Pickett's Charge, even though it is not the largest Confederate assault of the war. You may also be under the impression that it was a tactical error, A big mistake by Lee. When you really look at it, though, this may not be the case, and I hope to attempt to change the perspective. Let's first go over the assault plan, and then we can spend some time poking holes in it. Pickett's division and Longstreet's corps would be spearheading the attack. But as is trendy to point out, it was not just Pickett's division, but Pettigrew commanding for the still-wounded Heath and his division, as well as another two brigades, Lanes and Scales, commanded by Isaac Trimble. Trimble had recently returned from being wounded, and he's sort of the odd man out. He doesn't have a command, so he's given this pseudo-division command of these two brigades. There were still more men in Pettigrew's division than Pickett's, and remember, he is undersized. The two divisions would attack from Seminary Ridge, preceded by a general bombardment. Once the position was sufficiently suppressed, then the infantry would storm the ridge and break the Union line. Also important to the plan as that the rebel artillery would provide close fire support, moving their guns up. Much has been debated about the role that Jeb Stuart and his cavalry would play. Some say that it was part of the overall strategy for the horse soldiers to come in on the rear of Meade's position, either to break through and cause havoc, or to destroy the retreating enemy like a kind of Napoleonic battle. Stuart does not have orders to actually attack, so that's probably not the case and we will talk about the problems with that idea in general when we get to the cavalry action. Let's first argue for the attack in the near center of Meade's line. It is true that the flanks had not worked, which would also mean that the Federals had reinforced those areas, probably pulling from Cemetery Ridge. Now on the flip side of that attack being positive is that it should be noticeable by Lee that Meade is going to expect an attack in his center, and it is kind of weird. He doesn't do really a whole lot about it. He's a little tied down. We just mentioned how there are a lot of troops dispersed, so he doesn't really have the right amount of manpower to make the center very strong. It's, it's a strong position, but it just is not overwhelmingly so. So there's kind of like the flip side of that. Like, obviously, if you try both flanks, then Meade's going to expect something in the center. Ewell is actually going to continue his attempts at Culp's Hill to hopefully continue to pin down the Union reinforcements. There's already proven success from past experience, including the day prior. We talked about Rand's Wright's Georgians, and they had almost carried the ridge, and they were just a single brigade. I would throw out there that Gaines's Mill, Malvern Hill, and Chancellorsville all had larger coordinated attacks that had varying degrees of success as well. In the case of Malvern Hill, it was the lack of artillery that had proved the undoing, something that would be focused upon July 3rd. The ground we often hear is flat, but it's not quite the case, so there is at least that. But here's the negative. Rand's right had not been successful, and he talked about how strong the position really was. There's a great quote from a football coach that I think about often, and talks about how There's a word for almost winning, and it's called losing. So, Rand's right, having almost carried the position, doesn't mean he actually did it. And there's also a debate as to whether Rand's right actually does almost get there, quote-unquote, or whether there's a little bit of exaggeration in there. The position would be good for artillery, which we know the Union has a good amount of. The personnel is also an issue. Pettigrew, we should mention, still has more men than the undersized Division of Pickett, but they were engaged on the 1st. Some were treated roughly. Remember, we mentioned the 26th North Carolina and the amount of casualties they sustained against the 24th Michigan. These troops and others had already attacked Union troops on a slightly elevated position, and it had not gone very well. How well would they stand the second time in three days? Pickett was not necessarily the cream of the crop for the Army of Northern Virginia either. Now, there is a lot of talk about how Pickett does do an okay job in previous commands, but a lot of the fanfare around Pickett, he's a very flashy officer, that obviously helps, but a lot of the fanfare about Pickett goes back all the way to the Mexican-American War. So, he hasn't done really a whole lot to make an impact in the American Civil War yet. He thinks he's going to recapture that glory at Gettysburg. Overall, it would come down to support. If the attack was given the proper attention and direction with reinforcements, it would have a better chance of success. Skirmishing between the two sides would continue, especially in and around the town of Gettysburg itself. It would be in the morning on the 3rd that the only civilian fatality would be hit in the back by a stray shot. This would be Jenny Wade as she is baking bread. The generals would understand the severity of the fire. Ewell would be hit, although it would be in his wooden leg. Howard would order artillery fire on a church in town suspected of housing enemy snipers. must have been a very tough decision for the pious Howard to order firing on a church but then again perhaps it was not the right denomination besides the skirmishing though a lot of folks overlook the action that will occur at culps hill july the 3rd would see seven hours of combat in this area kicking off in the morning before pickett's charge unfortunately for the confederates the 12th corps had moved back to their original positions to make things harder Additionally, some of the reinforcements from the previous night would remain. The 14th Brooklyn, amongst other 11th Corps units, would hold the distinction of fighting on all three days. Geary's other brigades under Candy and Kane, and yeah, there's a little bit of a joke in there, would reinforce Green. Alpheus Williams' division would arrive as well. Ruger and McDougall's brigades would arrive to protect the Baltimore Pike closer to Spangler Spring. We should also mention that all along the federal lines Sedgwick's 6th Corps would be filling in various places. Ewell has Johnson reinforced with units from Rhodes' division, including O'Neill's Brigade and Junius Daniels. They would seek to capitalize on the gains the night before. During the night, the two sides had actually bedded down only yards apart. Union reinforcements would run into Confederates who sat on Lower Culp's Hill. This would actually open up the action with the 12th Corps attempting to retake this part of the high ground. After pushing back the rebels there, there would be a mix-up in orders, resulting in two regiments attacking across open ground near Spangler Spring called Pardee Field. We have an account of this attack. The rebels swarmed there but they are, many of them, sheltered. Every tree is riddled with bullets, and their dead and wounded lie, thick among the rocks. Several times they essay to advance, but reel backward with thin lines to their fastness among the great boulders. Gary is crowding upon them. A combined movement is, after some consultation, arranged to be made to dislodge them. General Ruger received orders to try the enemy on the right of the line of breastworks to the left of the Swale with two regiments, and if practicable, to dislodge them. He sent Lieutenant Snow to Colonel Colgrove with an order to advance skirmishers at that point, and if the enemy was not found, in too great a force, to advance two regiments and drive him out. This order, as Colonel Colgrove reports, was to advance his line immediately. He saw that it was useless to send in skirmishers. It was only possible to carry the hill by storm. His own brave regiment, the 27th Indiana and 2nd Massachusetts, were at the point on the line from which their assault would be made. They were ordered to go in the verbal order was given to colonel mudge are you sure it is the order he asked looking at the frowning rocks behind which the enemy were packed yes well said this brave gentleman it is murder but it is the order up men over the works forward double quick in an instant the two regiments rose and with a cheer sprang over their breastworks ran down the declivity to the swale and moved a double quick across the narrow meadow but as soon as they came into view, the gleam of thousands of gun barrels were seen amongst the rocks in their front. Regiments lying in the grass across Rock Creek also rose up and fired into their right flank. They advanced under a perfect hail of balls, men and officers falling at every step, but none save sorely wounded turning back. Colonel Mudge of the second, a noble gentleman fell dead in crossing that fatal meadow. Captain Tom Robeson, a gallant, chivalrous officer of the second, also fell mortally wounded. He had but a little while before shown the lofty courage of his nature one of his men had been wounded on the skirmish line and lay helpless and exposed under a broiling sun the hurrah captain boldly went out with a storm of bullets whistling about him took the wounded man in his arms and brought him to a place of shelter the 27th indiana on the right was terribly exposed not only from the rocks in the front but from the flank and after losing 23 men killed eight officers 29 men wounded, the regiment, seeing how hopeless was the effort to carry the position, fell back under orders. The 2nd Massachusetts pressed on, but bore a little to the left to find a point to enter between the large rocks in front. As it bore to the left, it came in front of the 3rd Wisconsin, which at that moment the other two regiments advanced. Colonel Hawley had moved forward to the edge of the swale to rush in and support the charge. As the 2nd moved in our front, it prevented the 3rd Regiment firing at the rebels who were rising up from behind the rocks to rain their fire into the faces of their assailants. There, the second were, a handful of brave men within pistol shot of the enemy, who were from higher ground and shelter in front and right, were pouring volleys into their ranks. It was distressing to see and not be able to give them aid, but as they advanced up close to the wall of rocks, they became a little less exposed. The rocks and trees gave them shelter, especially from a fire that came from across Rock Creek on the right. Colonel Morris took command when Kmudge fell. Holding the position, though, conscious that they were doing but little to effect, he sent to Colgrove for orders and ammunition. Colgrove ordered the second to fall back. It at once about faced under a withering fire and passed to the left and rear of our regiment, at double quick, but in good order, as the movement through such swampy ground would permit. This does give us a very good account of an attack, and you know this is an ill-advised one. Well, and we've seen it before, there are some times where there are these confusing moments on the battlefield, especially you know, in these larger engagements like Gettysburg, where orders are going to get confused, and obviously that has pretty dire consequences. Overall, the Confederate attacks would fare no better. They would be hit with fire from multiple places. An account from a rebel would recall how his company seemed to melt away under the fire from the fixed positions. Maryland Stewart's brigade in particular would suffer heavy casualties during the failed attempts. Culp's Hill would hold. Ewell had failed to pin down more reinforcements. The battle would shift to the grand assault. In the center, there was a lull in the fighting. While there was some skirmishing that resulted in the burning of the Bliss Farm, Meade and other officers would be able to enjoy a meal as the Confederate artillery got into position. But the question we usually ask is why was it quiet? If there is already fighting at Culp's Hill, it would make sense if the attacks had begun earlier. There is no real good explanation why, although some point to Longstreet dragging his feet. Regardless, they would begin in the afternoon. Pendleton may have been the overall commander of artillery, but E. Porter Alexander was going to be instrumental in the placing of the pieces. He would be given a large amount of responsibility. I have seen it in some sources that Pendleton had moved some reserve artillery rounds, which would mean the batteries assembling would be limited in how many shots they would get off. Around 1 p.m. two recently arrived Whitworth pieces would open up, announcing the jump off for the rest. Whitworths were breech-loading rifled cannon made in England. And uh, they are kind of cool to look at, you know, with the breech-loading. You don't really often think about that with a Civil War artillery piece. As the artillery opened up, the Union troops would run for cover. As Meade's headquarters were very close to the front, obviously they would come under fire. Meade would attempt to relieve the situation by telling his staffers a story of a barrage that he had witnessed in Mexico where there was a soldier hiding behind a wagon. And when that soldier was told that hiding behind the wagon wasn't really going to actually make him safer, the soldier responded that it sure felt like that. So, obviously... Any kind of cover would be preferable to just being out in the open. Some of the northern batteries stationed along the ridge would attempt to return fire for a time. And actually, there are some of these rounds that do fall amongst the waiting Confederate infantry. Henry Hunt, though, will be on the scene. Now, Hunt is in our story before and made a big impact, as you should know by now. We have his account of the bombardment and actions taken it was of the first importance to subject the enemy's infantry from the first moment of their advance to such a crossfire of artillery as would break their formation check their impulse and drive them back or at least bring them to our lines in such condition as to make them easy prey there was neither time nor necessity for reporting this to general meade And beginning on the right, I instructed the chiefs of artillery and battery commanders to withhold their fire for 15 or 20 minutes after the cannonade commenced, then to concentrate their fire with all possible accuracy on those batteries which were most destructive to us, but slowly, so that when the enemy's ammunition was exhausted, we should have sufficient left to meet the assault. I had just given these orders to the last battery on Little Round Top when the signal gun was fired and the enemy opened up with all his guns. From that point, the scene was indescribably grand. All their batteries were soon covered with smoke, through which the flashes were incessant, whilst the air seemed filled with shells, whose sharp explosions, with the hurtling of their fragments, formed a running accompaniment to the deep roar of the guns. Thence I rode to the artillery reserve to order fresh batteries and ammunition to be sent up the ridge as soon as the cannonade ceased but both the reserve and the train were gone to a safer place. Messengers, however, had been left to receive and convey orders, which I sent by them, then returned to the ridge. Turning into the tiny town pike, I saw evidence of the necessity under which the reserve had decamped, and the remains of a dozen exploited caissons, which had been placed under cover of a hill, but which the shells had managed to search out. In fact, the fire was more dangerous behind the ridge than on its crest which I soon reached at the position occupied by General Newton behind McGilvery's batteries, from which we had a fine view of all our own guns, were now in action. Most of the enemy's projectiles passed overhead, the effect being to sweep all the ground in our rear, which was of little benefit to the Confederates, a mere waste of ammunition, for everything here could seek shelter. And just here, an incident already published may be reported as it illustrates a peculiar feature of civil war. Colonel Long, who was at that moment on General Lee's staff, had a few years before served in my mounted battery expressly to receive a course of instruction in the use of field artillery. At Appomattox, we spent several hours together, and in the course of conversation, I told him I was not satisfied with the conduct of his cannonade, which I had heard was under his direction, as much as he had not done justice to his instruction that his fire Instead of being concentrated on the point of attack, as it ought to have been, and as I expected it would be, was scattered over the whole field. He was amused at the criticism and said, I remember my lessons at the time, and when the fire became so scattered, wondered what you would think about it. I rode along the ridge to inspect the batteries. The infantry were lying down on the reverse slope, near the crest, in open ranks, awaiting events. As I passed along, A bolt from a rifled gun struck the ground just in front of a man of the front rank, penetrated the surface and passed under him, throwing him over and over. He fell behind the rear rank, apparently dead. And a ridge of earth where he had been lying reminded me of the backwards practice of barking squirrels. Our fire was deliberate, but on inspecting the chest I found that the ammunition was running low, and hastened to general Meade to advise its immediate cessation and preparation for the assault which would certainly follow. The headquarters building immediately behind the ridge had been abandoned, and many of the horses of the staff lay dead. Being told that the general had gone to the cemetery, I proceeded thither. He was not there, and on telling General Howard my object, he concurred in its propriety, and rode back along the ridge, ordering the fire to cease. This was followed by a cessation of that of the enemy, under the mistaken impression he had silenced our guns, and almost immediately his infantry came out of the woods, formed for the assault. So we have a pretty good idea of Henry Hunt and his role, and obviously he does the smart decision and trying to make sure that the artillery does not actually return fire or continue firing. Both sides are running low on ammunition. That's something that we really don't think about. There's been pretty heavy fighting on the previous two days, so obviously you're not going to be at 100%. Now the important thing is that Hunt would realize that the bombardment was going to precede an infantry assault. Now, if our artillery had been properly moved for close support, this may have been the wrong move. Well, let's talk about reasons why the artillery fire was not working. For one thing, the Civil War is not a great example in general of a conflict where a position is softened by artillery. We have to get to the World Wars for that. It was surmised by the Rebel Gunners that the troops were on the reverse slope of the hill, so that is where they concentrated their fire. The infantry of Gibbon and Hayes would remain where they were behind the stone wall. Most of the shells would pass harmlessly overhead. Additionally, there had been some emphasis placed on the defective nature of the Confederate artillery ammunition. Some of the fuses would malfunction, meaning the shot would not detonate where it had intended. As you can imagine, this would be a problem. Whether the ammunition really was the reason the artillery fire was not working as designed or not, Hunt would order the Federal pieces to get to safety. Some of the Union guns had been disabled, so the fire was not all dysfunction. There is also a lot of emphasis placed on Longstreet and his interaction with Porter Alexander. Essentially, he will rely on Alexander to make the decision whether your attack should be called off. I'm sure we have been in a situation where a high-ranking member of our company has asked us our opinion, and usually that is fine, but I bet we aren't usually asked to determine a high-level decision that will impact the entire company. Usually this is an example of Longstreet being less than enthusiastic with Lee's plan and wanting to seek any avenue to call it off. Reportedly, Longstreet had early stated that there was no way they could take the hill. Rand's right had told the other officers in Pickett's division that the problem was not getting there, but keeping the ground. Alexander would notice the withdrawal of the enemy guns, but he would also understand that their ammunition was limited. He sent word to Pickett that if the attack was going to happen, then it needed to happen now. Otherwise, he would not be able to support him as he was expected. Pickett wished to get things going. As mentioned, he had had glory on the battlefield during the Mexican-American War. So far, in this war, glory had eluded him. He had been wounded at Gaines' mill and had missed some time. Some were critical of the dashing general because he seemed more concerned with his young bride than his duties in the army. Pickett, along with many of the rank and file, were confident of success as they stepped out of the woods into the open fields. Just as a quick note, before we continue with the charge here, one of the reasons why it is called Pickett's Charge is that his division, of course, is the one that's leading it. Now, it's argued that perhaps it could be called more Longstreet's Charge than anything, because Longstreet technically, even though he's using some of Hill's troops, he's the one who's supposed to be directing it. So there's that kind of argument, but it's why we call it Pickett's charge is that he's the one who's leading it with the fresh troops. So that's another thing that we like to point out when we talk about the Pickett, Pettigrew, or Trimble charge, as some, some call it. Pettigrew and Pickett would advance with their lines set to converge and link up. Pettigrew from left to right would have Brock and brigade, Davis's brigade, Pettigrew's Brigade commanded by James Marshall, who is a descendant of the Chief Justice, and finally Burkett Fry, commanding Archer's Brigade, the former filibuster. Fry and his mixed Alabama and Tennessee regiments would link up with Richard Garnett's Brigade, advancing with James Kemper. Louis Armistead and his Brigade would advance behind in support. Advancing across the Emmitsburg Pike, they would turn in before continuing on to their goal for maximum impact. A copse of trees would be the target. I've seen it mentioned that VMI was on full display compared with the usual emphasis of West Point, especially amongst the junior officers. This would make sense with the amount of Virginia regiments. Across the field would be a tough disciplinarian in Alex Hayes, facing Pettigrew with Thomas Smith's brigade. Remnants of Willard's Old Brigade and Samuel Sprig Carroll's regiments, which will include the 8th Ohio, will be there as well. Important to note that the Union lines are going to be running relatively along a stone wall, and there will be an angle in the wall, which would become sort of a target. Now Gibbon's troops here would include Webb and the Philadelphia Brigade at the angle, Hall's Mixed Brigade, which includes the 19th and 20th Massachusetts, as well as the 7th Michigan, and the 42nd and 59th New York. Caro's Brigade, which includes the 19th Maine, 15th Massachusetts, 1st Minnesota, and 82nd New York, is further south. George Stannard's Vermont replacements will be linking up with some of the 1st Corps troops who had slid in connecting the line. The batteries would roll back into position as the rebels moved across the open fields. These would include Alonzo Cushing and his Battery A, 4th United States, stationed at the angle with the Philly Brigade. Cushing was an 1861 West Pointer, who we talked about in a previous episode, actually. Although wounded in the groin, Cushing would remain with his only working 3-inch Ordnance rifle, taking a shot that would kill him before pulling the lanyard at the oncoming rebels. Thomas Arnold's Battery A, 1st Rhode Island, would be the primary battery north of the Angle and Copse of Trees. Captain Andrew Cowan and his first New York Light would be south of the angle facing Kempers and Garnett's oncoming brigades. Overall, the artillery opening up would be coming as a surprise to the attackers. Not only would they be receiving rounds from the guns directed to their front, but they would also be receiving fire from Little Round Top and Cemetery Hill, not the scenario in which Lee probably thought was ideal. One of the big issues of the attack is that it would funnel a lot of men into more narrow ground. Now this was intentional on part of Lee actually to have the greatest amount of force on the Union line. However, it also made the job easier for the batteries, hitting the massed units. Another issue during the attack was that the fences were not cleared. The Emmitsburg Pike had two sturdy rail fences, so getting over those would cause time and make targets out of the attackers. Some sources will cite that the Emmitsburg Pike is where a lot of the attackers will remain as opposed to continuing on. There's also several accounts, actually, of, you know, we talked about how the Confederates mention the Pennsylvania farm landscapes, and they do mention these fences. It's very different than sort of the split rail uh, kind of fences that you see in the south that are more easily taken apart. So these are very much more obstacles. Finally, we come to the leadership of Pettigrew and Pickett. Pettigrew has not commanded such a large body of men before, and so his unfamiliarity is an issue. Pickett also does not take the initiative. He does not advance with his troops, stopping at the Kadori farm. While he did make his way there, he does not order any changes to his units. One account I saw stated that during the attack, Pickett was all the way back at Seminary Ridge, even. Was this also newness when it came to large combat command, or was the overconfidence of victory such where he believed his officering was not necessary? It is an interesting thought. Certainly, Longstreet should have stepped in, but he is reported to have been in a sour mood that day and would not. Of course, that leads to your talks about how. Longstreet really doesn't want to support the attack to its fullest. Hill is also going to continue to do nothing as is par for the course during this campaign. I'm not one for pointing fingers, but there are a lot of directions we could be looking. We have Union troops writing accounts of watching the enemy move in formation towards them, and here is one. From our position, we could overlook the whole valley between the two lines all at once over their works and through the bushes that skirted them came a heavy skirmish line the skirmishers were about two paces apart covering about three quarters of a mile of our front behind them about 20 rods came another heavy skirmish line behind them about the same distance came out the first line of battle as they first emerged and had continued straight to their front their charge would have been centered upon the troops to our left it was a magnificent line of battle over three quarters of a mile long the men carried their guns with fixed bayonets at right shoulder. The regimental flags and guidons were plainly visible along the whole line. The guns and bayonets in the sunlight shone like silver. The whole line of battle looked like a stream or river of silver moving toward us. Behind this came the regimental officers, while behind them, mounted, and followed by their aides, came their brigade and division commanders, with their orderlies carrying their guidons and headquarters flags. Then came the second line of infantry, in the same form and order as the first, followed by their commanders on horses. Behind the still and heavy mass columns on the center and wings were the supports and reserves. Two streaming lines of silver led off, decorated and enlivened by their battle flags. Their order was magnificent. The movement of such a force over such a field, in such perfect order, to such a destiny, was grand beyond expression. After moving forward about a quarter of a mile, a change was made in the direction of the line. A left half wheel was executed and they came straight for us, so that their left would strike to the right of our brigade. The whole line, to us who were in front, seemed straight as an arrow, the whole force like a magnificent parade. My own heart was thrilled at the sight. I was so absorbed with the beauty and grandeur of the scene that I became oblivious to the shells that were bursting about us. This passage of scripture came to my mind, and I repeated it aloud. Fair as the moon, bright as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. Shortly their skirmishers came within range, "'Ours reserved their fire until the enemy came close to them. "'Our fire was then so accurate and severe "'that their first line was held in check "'and could not force ours back. "'Their second line of skirmishers reinforced the first, "'and ours then began to yield, falling back slowly. "'Our batteries from Cemetery Hill fired over our heads "'and threw shells, which went through the lines, "'bursting among them. "'Gaps were opened and quickly closed again. "'The shells kept flying, gaps opened and closed, "'and the silver lines in perfect order came on. "'Skirmishers fired sharply.' The horsemen galloped to and fro behind the lines as the goal was approached. The half-wheel of the enemy exposed their flank to the fire of McGilvary's and Hazlitt's guns from our rear near Round Top, but there was no flinching. Gaps opened and closed, but the lines came forward. It may surprise you to know that many of the Union troops were not quite so confident. There's definitely an air of, well, Robert E. Lee is just going to figure out a way to pull it out here, kind of like at Chancellorsville, we're going to be defeated Robert E. Lee really, at least they say, you know, the Army of Northern Virginia has not lost yet, and there definitely is that kind of air of, oh, well, this is going to be the conclusion here. But as the fire tore into the gray ranks, they resolved to do their duty. The left flank, Brock and brigade of Pettigrew's attackers would break first. Now, I've seen it implied that Pettigrew knew this brigade was inferior to the rest of his units, and that's why he threw them onto the flank, so that it could potentially absorb fire and then withdraw without taking the strength out of the punch of his attack. Whatever reason for placing them there, their collapse is going to open movement onto the flank. The 8th Ohio will advance beyond the Union line in the vicinity of the Bryan Farm and then be able to hit Davis's brigade in the flank. We have an account from a member of the 8th Ohio. I formed the few remaining braves in a single line, and as the rebels came within short range of our skirmish line, charged them. Some fell, some ran back. Most of them, however, threw down their arms and were made prisoners. In this maneuver among the killed was Lieutenant Hayden, Company H. We changed our front, and taking position by a fence facing the left flank of the advancing column of the rebels, the men were ordered to fire into their flank at will. Hardly a musket had been fired at this time. The front of the column was nearly up the slope, and within a few yards of the line of the second course front and its batteries, when suddenly a terrific fire from every available gun, from the cemetery to Round Top Mountain, burst upon them. The distinct, graceful lines of the rebels underwent an instantaneous transformation. They were at once enveloped in a dense cloud of smoke and dust. Arms, heads, blankets, guns, and knapsacks were thrown and tossed into the clear air. Their track, as they advanced, was strewn with dead and wounded. A moan went up from the field. "'Distinctly to be heard amidst the storm of battle, but they went on. "'Too much enveloped in smoke and dust now to permit us to distinguish their lines or movements, "'for the mass appeared more like a cloud of moving smoke and dust than a column of troops. "'Still it advanced, amid the now deafening roar of artillery and storm of battle. "'Suddenly the column gave way. "'The sloping landscape appeared covered all at once with the scattered and retreating foe. "'A withering sheet of missiles swept after them, "'and they were torn and tossed and prostrate as they ran. "'It seemed as if no one would escape.' Of the mounted officers who rode so grandly in advance, not one was to be seen on the field. All had got down. The 8th advance and cut off three regiments, or remnants of regiments, as they passed us, taking their colors and capturing many prisoners. The colors captured were those of the 34th North Carolina, 38th Virginia, and one that was taken from the captor, Sergeant Miller, Company G, by a staff officer. The number of the regiment was not remembered. Hayes would see the value in the eighth's posting and would send additional regiments out. On the Confederate right flank of the assault, we have a similar situation with Stannard's Vermont Brigade. Wilcox would be late in supporting the attack, and when he did so, he would advance further south, not in a spot to neutralize the threat on Kemper. Since these Green Mountain boys had been garrison troops, it was questionable to the rest of the army whether they would stand and fight. On the third day, they would do service, and there is an account of their actions as well. Up rose the Green Mountain boys, three thousand strong, as if by magic, with forms erect, took deliberate aim, and with a simultaneous flash and roar, fired into the combat ranks of the desperate foe, and again and again in quick succession, until a dozen or more volleys had been discharged with deadly effect. We saw at every volley the gray uniforms fall quick and fast, and the front line hesitated, moved slowly, and melted away, and could not advance against such a curious and steady storm of bullets in their faces and the raking fire of McGilvery's batteries against their flank. Amidst this, unexpected fusillade of bullets grape, and canister, they halted, and quickly, in good order, massing columns to our right, uncovering the immediate front of Stanner's brigade, and with an awful menacing yell dashed forward with their evident purpose of carrying the crest of Cemetery Ridge at our right and rear. Pickett's massing of columns and verging to his left and our right opened a clear field of fire in front of Stanner's brigade, furnishing a golden opportunity for a flank advance against General Pickett's advancing battle lines. The account then goes on. This was at short range, and the concentrated fire of the 13th into the moving flank before them quickly covered the ground with the dead and wounded. Not until then did they realize their awful situation, and then they waved handkerchiefs and threw up their hands as evidence of surrender. It was at this juncture that Colonel Rander, at the risk of his own, from the muskets of his own regiment, passed rapidly down the line and shouted, stop firing. Then we advanced. As the thirteenth charged forward from its last position, some of the more revengeful and desperate continued to their fire in our faces as we advanced. We opened fire again, and then rushed up against them with bayonets, revengefully determined to slay the very last of man unless they would heed our offer surrender. Bayonets were crossed, and the desperate thrusts exchanged, and the hand-to-hand struggle followed. Many fell wounded and bleeding, pierced with bayonet, sword, and pistol, and musket balls. This was the final struggle, and it was soon over. We were now in their front and rear, and escape was impossible. The crouching rose up, and all the living, including the slightly wounded, hurriedly and anxiously passed through our ranks to the rear, turning over their guns, pistols, and sabers as they passed on. If there were any spot on that great field of battle that was approximated more nearly than any other of the maelstrom of destruction, this was the place. They lay one upon the other, questioned death side by side, the dead dying and horribly wounded, Some had on the blue, but nearly all wore the gray, for on a few square rods, one could hardly step so thickly lay the dead. A thousand could have been counted on less than two acres of ground. This was indeed the great slaughter pen on the field of Gettysburg, and in it lay hundreds of the brave heroes, who an hour before booed up with hope and ambition, were being led, as they fully believed, to victory. So we see the Vermont regiments are able to enfilade the enemy to great effect. Winfield Scott Hancock would actually advance to their position and receive a pretty serious leg wound as he watched the action. Two of Kemper's regiments would peel off from the attack to engage Stannard, but it was a little too late to make a difference. Now, Pettigrew is often overlooked, mostly because he is going to be mortally wounded a few days after Gettysburg. There is something to be said for the terrain which he was asked to assault or probably not what we would think of as a hill, he did have to go over rougher, more elevated ground toward Hayes' division. Now, Burkett Fry would actually be successful and link up with Richard Garnett. Garnett had defied orders to advance dismounted because he was ill. So stained had his record been after Kernstown that he needed to regain his honor, so he would not miss the attack, although I have seen an account where a doctor advised against it. Kemper, too, would remain on his horse during the attack. Through the artillery fire, the lines would get to within range of the small arms. In some cases, the Union soldiers had stacked weapons collected from the action on the day before. Colonel Dennis O'Kane of the 69th Pennsylvania would order such an action. His men, along with Cushing's guns, and the 71st Pennsylvania would be at the stone wall. Now, the wall would not actually provide too much in terms of cover, but in some places the men had tried to improve it into a better breastwork against the enemy. Pieces in the various batteries would switch to canister with deadly effect on the southern ranks. We have an account of Garnett's attack describing the action. The column moved on at a quick step with the shouldered arms, and the fire of the skirmish line was not returned. Halfway over the field, an order ran down the line, left oblique, which was promptly obeyed, and the direction has changed 45 degrees from the front to the left. Men, looking away, far off toward the left length, saw that the supporting columns were then crumbling and melting away rapidly. The command now came along the line, front forward, and the column resumed its direction straight upon the center of the enemy's position. The destruction of life in the ranks of that advancing host was fearful beyond precedent, officers going down by dozens, and the men by scores and fifties. We were now 400 yards from the foot of Cemetery Hill, when away off to the right nearly half a mile. There appeared, in the open field, a line of men at right angles with our own, a long dark mass, dressed in blue, and coming down at a double quick, upon the unprotected right flank of Pickett's men, with their muskets upon the right shoulder shift, their battle flags dancing and fluttering the breeze, created by their own rapid motion, and their burnished bayonets glistening above their heads like forest twigs covered with sheets of sparkling ice when shaken by a blast. The enemy were now strengthening their lines, where the blow was expected to strike, by hurrying up reserves from the right and left. The columns from opposite directions passing each other double along our front, like the fingers of a man's two hands locking together. The distance had again shortened and officers in the enemy's lines could be distinguished by their uniforms from the privates. Then was heard that heavy thud of a muffled thread of armed men, that roar and rush of tramping feet as Armistead's column from the rear closed up behind the front line, and he, the last brigadier, took command stepped down in front with his hat uplifted on the point of his sword, and led the division, now four ranks deep, rapidly and grandly across that valley of death, covered with clover as soft as a Turkish carpet. There it was again and again, a sound filling the air above and below, around us, like the blast through the top of a dry cedar, or the wearing sound made by the sudden flight of a flock of quail. It was grape and canister, and the column broke forward into a double-quick, and rushed toward the stone wall where forty cannon were belching forth grape and canister twice and thrice a minute. A hundred yards from the stone wall, the flanking party on the right, coming down on a heavy run, halted suddenly within fifty yards and poured a deadly storm of musket balls into Pickett's men, double-quicking across their front, and under this terrible crossfire, the men reeled and staggered between falling comrades, and the right came pressing down upon the center, crowding the companies into confusion. We all knew the purpose to carry the heights in front, and the mingled mass from fifteen to thirty feet deep rushed toward the stone wall, while a few hundred men, without orders, faced to the right and fought the flanking party there, although fifty to one, and for a time held them at bay. Muskets were seen crossed as some fired to the right and others to the front, and the fighting was terrific, far beyond other experience even of Pickett's men, who for once raised no cheer while the welkin ran around them with a union-tripled huzzah. The old veterans saw the fearful odds against them, and the other hopes gathering darker and deeper still. The time was too precious, too serious for a cheer. They buckled down to the heavy task in silence, and fought with a feeling like despair. On swept the calm overground, covered with dead and dying men, where the earth seemed to be on fire, the smoke dense and suffocating, the sun shot out, flames blazing on every side, Friend could hardly be distinguished from foe, but the division in the shape of an inverted V, with the point flattened, pushed forward. Field-grade officers would start to go down. Joseph Mayo of the 3rd Virginia in Kemper's brigade will be the only one to get through the assault unscathed from Pickett's division. While Patton commanding the 7th Virginia, George T. Patton's ancestor would be mortally wounded as a shot takes away part of his jaw. Many of the Confederates would stop and return fire, having suffered enough at the hands of their foe. Garnett would be shot off his horse as the Virginians approached. Kemper would be hit in the spine, and actually thought to be mortally wounded. He will eventually be captured by the Northern troops. Perket Fry would be wounded and captured, Joseph Davis wounded. Jimmy Marshall would be killed as the Tar Heels approached the stone wall. Monuments marked the furthest advance. Actually, I have a great picture of that marker in the snow, and I will make sure to try to post it to the website. It is actually also the banner on our YouTube page, so that's depicting the monument in the foreground was where the furthest advance of the North Carolina troops is made. Davis's regiments would also collapse after the fire from their front and flank intensified. The 11th Mississippi, a veteran regiment who had missed the first day's fight, would make it to the Bryan Farm, but one account has it that After looking around, the Confederates realized that only a handful of men remained, and so the options were only flight or surrender. Trimble's brigades would move forward, but they would not make it across the Emmitsburg Road. Trimble would be wounded and captured, amazingly enough. There would be no additional support from Hill's Corps. But we do need to talk about Armistead and his brigade. His attack thus far has gone not quite so poorly as the other brigades. In his reserve position, he will be able to have enough men to penetrate the Union lines. Along with remnants of Garnett and Fry, he will take the copse of trees. Fierce hand-to-hand fighting would erupt around the stone wall, especially with the 69th Pennsylvania. In the meantime, the 71st would actually withdraw to Webb's horror. Now Alexander Webb will get the Medal of Honor and be wounded at the fighting, so not trying to detract from him, but he had only recently taken over command of the brigade. So I have also seen it pointed out that the Philadelphia regiments might not have actually known who he was, so it's questionable as to what actual impact he has. O'Kane is going to be mortally wounded in the fighting as Armistead breaks through. We of course have an account of his punch past the stone wall. At the critical moment in response to a request from Kemper, Armistead, bracing himself to the desperate blow, rushed forward to Kemper's and Garnett's lines. "'delivered his fire, and with one supreme effort "'planted his colors on the famous rock fence. "'Armistead himself, with his hat on the point of his sword, "'that his men might see it through the smoke of battle, "'rushed forward, scaled the wall, and cried, "'Boys, give them the cold steel.' "'By this time, the Federal host lapped around both flanks "'and made a counter-advance in their front, "'and the remnant of those three little brigades melted away. "'Armistead himself had fallen, mortally wounded, "'under the guns he had captured.' While the few who followed him over the fence were either dead or wounded. The charge was over, the sacrifice had been made. But in the words of a federal officer, banks of heroes they were, they fled not. But amidst that still continuous and terrible fire, they slowly, sullenly recrossed the plain, all that was left of them, but few of the five thousand. Now, this is often known as the high water mark of the Confederacy. But here I think we have a great example of an argument against those who say Pickett's charge was a tactical blunder. And that is because, simply, it sort of works. They accomplished their task. The Confederates do break the line, and while the Union generals are going to throw reserve units in and stop the thrust, the attack is almost successful. One Confederate would write that he was amazed at the lack of federal troops that were actually posted on the ridge, saying that if he knew that's all there were, he would not have surrendered. Men during the attack do wonder why there aren't additional troops thrown into the fight. Carnet Posey and Billy Mahone have fresh brigades that did nothing the previous two days, so it's interesting to me why they were not used. If Pickett has his other two brigades that were left behind in Richmond, it also might have been different. Even the already spent brigades in McClaws and Hoods' division could have been at least something to the capitalization of success. Fortunately for Meade and the Union Army, they do not advance, because then there certainly would have been a problem. Pickett is going to immediately blame Hill in his immediate reports, and he sort of has a point. The 72nd and 106th Pennsylvania will rally and meet Armistead. Armistead would fall mortally wounded by one of Cushing's guns. Norman Hall's troops would also provide assistance in mopping up the couple hundred or so breakthroughs. In the 19th Massachusetts, we see the first Hispanic Medal of Honor recipient in Corporal Joseph DeCastro, who captures the flag of the 19th Virginia of Garnett's Brigade. Many battle flags were in the hands of the Northern troops. Hayes reportedly dragged a flag behind him as he rode down the line of his Second Corps troops. It's a sort of par to the course for Hayes. He's a little bit of a psycho. He's reported to as having been said while well, the... Confederates advanced toward them that now they were about to see some fun. So, this behavior tracks, as they say. Meade would ride to Little Round Top to observe the enemy. Incredibly, although only days into command, he had won a great victory. Streams of rebels would make their way back across the fields. Wilcox and Lang would move forward, but do little more than get hit with artillery fire, inflicting some needless casualties. In all, 6,000 Rebels had been lost, including 3,300 captured. These casualty numbers are often changing, but that's an approximate value. I've seen also more in the mid-5,000 range. There were some 2,000 Union losses during the charge, including 44% of the Philadelphia Brigade. Lee would console some of his generals, including Wilcox, stating that it was all his fault. We have an account of his behavior. Soon afterwards, I joined General Lee, who had in the meantime come to the front on becoming aware of the disaster. If Longstreet's conduct was admirable, that of General Lee was perfectly sublime. He was engaged in rallying and encouraging the broken troops and I was riding about a little in front of the wood, quite alone, the whole of his staff being engaged in similar manner further to the rear. His face, which is always placid and cheerful, did not show signs of the slightest disappointment, care, or annoyance and he was addressing every soldier he met a few words of encouragement, such as, All this will come right in the end. We'll talk it over afterwards. But, in the meantime, all good men must rally. We want all good and true men just now. He spoke to all the wounded men that passed him, and the slightly wounded he exhorted, to bind up their hearts and take up a musket in this emergency. Very few failed to answer his appeal, and I saw many badly wounded men take off their hats and cheer him. He said to me, This has been a sad day for us, Colonel, a sad day, but we can't expect always to gain victories. He was also kind enough to advise me to get into some more sheltered position. Notwithstanding the misfortune which had so suddenly befallen him, General Lee seemed to observe everything, however trivial. When a mounted officer began licking his horse for shying at the bursting of a shell, he called out, Don't whip him, Captain, don't whip him. I've got just such another foolish horse myself and whipping does no good. Additionally, we actually have another account where Lee is a little bit more revealing, a little bit more behind the curtain there, and he's speaking with cavalry officer John in Bowdoin afterward. I remarked in a sympathetic tone, in an allusion to his great fatigue, General, this has been a hard day on you. This attracted his attention. He looked up and replied mournfully, Yes, it has been a sad day. A sad day to us. And immediately... "'relapsed into his thoughtful mood and attitude. "'Being unwilling again to intrude upon his reflections, "'I said no more. "'After a minute or two, "'he suddenly straightened up to his full height "'and turning to me with more animation, energy, "'and excitement of manner than I had ever seen him before. "'He addressed me in a voice tremulous with emotion and said, "'General, I have never saw troops behave more magnificently "'than Pickett's division of Virginians did today "'in their grand charge upon the enemy.' and if they had been supported as they were to have been, but, for some reason not yet fully explained to me, they were not, we would have held the position they so gloriously won at such a fearful loss of noble lives, and the day would have been ours. After a moment he added in a tone almost of agony, too bad, too bad, oh, too bad. The infantry action was over. Now Pickett's charge has been played out, and that's true, so you may be looking at the additional time on the episode wondering what exactly we're going to talk about. Well, the infantry actions are complete, but we do have cavalry actions we need to discuss. Jeb Stuart, as we know, has arrived on the field, as have several Union cavalry brigades. Now, we should point out that the cavalry has been running and fighting since Brandy Station, so you could imagine that they are not really all that combat effective as they otherwise would have been. In Stuart's case, it does not help as having just completed a ride around the army, skirmishing with enemy cavalry along the way. Stewart would assemble on the flank of the army, freeing up extra Billy as well as Walker and the Stonewall Brigade for assaults on Culp's Hill. As mentioned yesterday, David McMurtry Gregg will be positioned along Brinkerhoff Ridge and skirmish with the enemy. His objective was also to protect the flank of the army and the intersection of the Low Dutch Road and Hanover Road, If gained, the Confederates could cut supply and end up in the rear of the Army of the Potomac. Gregg is a division commander with the brigades of John Gregg, David's cousin, John McIntosh, brother actually to James McIntosh, who, if you remember from 1862, is a Confederate who falls at Pea Ridge, but at least for the third day, he's going to be without John. Some of McIntosh's brigade will be on hand, as well as a brigade of Michigan Cavalry under George Armstrong Custer. Custer, of course, was one of the boy generals, West Point class of 1861. He was actually under Kilpatrick's command, but Gregg would get him to stay as his support would be sorely needed. Stewart will have Hampton's brigade, Fitzhugh Lee's, and John Chambliss, in addition to Jenkins' cavalry, now commanded by Vincent Witcher, as Jenkins was wounded by artillery fire. Now, there's no evidence that Stewart had direct orders to attack and make his way a la Napoleon to meet Rear for the final touch on Lee's victory. It is more likely he was wanting to eliminate Gregg and the threat he posed to the flank, which is why the fighting is roughly three miles from Gettysburg. There is a classic story of how Stewart's guns would be the signal for the attack, but Lee must have had some pretty good ears if he could hear those horse artillery three miles away and not get it confused with the action taking place on Culp's Hill. Anyway, Stewart would try to lure the enemy into a trap. Skirmishing would occur around the Rummel Farm between Jenkins and McIntosh's brigades. This would actually turn out to be a pretty hot engagement. Jenkins and his cavalry were more like mounted infantry, so they would be a match for the troopers. This would be until the 5th Michigan is thrown into the fighting. Custer's brigade of the 1st, 5th, 6th, and 7th Michigan would have two Sabre regiments of traditional cavalry and two regiments who carried new Spencer-repeating carbines, the 5th being one such regiment. Although they would stop any forward movement by Jenkins and Chambliss in support, Major Noah Ferry of the 5th would be killed in this part of the fighting. Stewart would see an opportunity to split the Union command in two, however. He would throw Chambliss's men in, who would be stopped by a charge from the 1st Michigan. Custer reportedly led the charge with the now-famous line, Come on, you Wolverines. Artillery would duel between the two sides, but Stewart would order up Hampton and Lee to take the guns. Custer would again lead a charge with the 7th Michigan to spoil this attempt. We have an account of the action. We moved forward at a trot past Rummel's barn and engaged the mounted men at close range across a fence. Some of our troops dismounted, threw down the fence, and we entered the field. A short hand-to-hand fight ensued, but the enemy speedily broke and fled. Whilst pursuing them, I observed another body of the enemy approaching rapidly from the right to strike us in the flank and rear. I bore off in company with a portion of our men to meet and check the force. We soon found ourselves overpowered and fell back closely, pressed on two lines which converged at the barn. I was by General Stewart's side as we approached the barn. My horse fell at this point, placing me in danger of being made a prisoner. At this moment, General Hampton dashed up at the head of his brigade. He was holding the colors in his hand and passed them into the hands of a soldier at his side just as he swept by me. The charge of his brigade, as far as I could judge, was successful in driving the enemy back from that part of the field. Our brigade reformed on the edge of woods in which it stood before the charge was made, and this position was held until we were quietly withdrawn at night. Our position commanded an easy view of the barn and of the line of our skirmishers assumed at the beginning of the battle. We were so near to the barn that I rode back to where my horse had fallen to secure, if possible, the effects strapped to my saddle. Later in the evening, I sent two of my men to the same spot to search for the body of Private B.B. Ashton of my company, who is supposed to have been left dead on the field. These facts warrant me in the conviction that we were not driven from the field, as had been contended. Wade Hampton would be wounded quite severely in the head and barely escape, making a dramatic exit-jumping offense. Other Union regiments would hit the attacking rebels in the flank, including the 3rd Pennsylvania. Captain John Miller of the 3rd would lead his men without orders to stop the Confederates, earning him the Medal of Honor. The action is short and fierce, with Custer's Michigan Brigade taking 219 losses. Now much is said about how Custer saves Meade on the 3rd day, but in reality Custer did not take the initiative to charge the enemy. The regimental commanders were given orders directly from Gregg, who probably should get more credit. Custer not only is bypassed, but is probably not necessary in the charges he makes so we see a little of the inexperience in command here. Regardless, whatever threat Stuart had to the Federal rear had been neutralized. There are two other cavalry actions we need to talk about to close out Day 3. The first is the unfortunate action known as Farnsworth Charge, which is actually combined with action by Wesley Merritt's moving up the Emmitsburg Road. Kilpatrick is on the southern portion of the field, and is actually going to get an order from Pleasanton to attack the enemy, because they would most likely be in retreat after their charge was repulsed. Kilpatrick needed no urging to get into action, and remember he's always really eager and good for a cavalry charge. He would turn to Elon Farnsworth for such a task. The 1st West Virginia and 18th Pennsylvania would be repulsed in their move toward the Confederates. The terrain is not going to be conducive to larger-scale cavalry actions. In this area would be Hood's division, who were angry at their losses from the previous day. They would take great satisfaction in venting this frustration on charging Yankee cavalry. While the first two regiments were unsuccessful, Kilpatrick would order Farnsworth to continue with one of his remaining, the First Vermont. Reportedly, the two would become involved in a heated argument. Obviously, Farnsworth is not eager for this attack. Confederates would write that they could actually hear the exchange from their side of the field. Kilpatrick would eventually say that if Farnsworth did not lead his men, then he would. Now, it is questionable if Kilpatrick would actually have been at the head of the 1st Vermont instead of Farnsworth, and if the young general had essentially told his superior to, uh, well, go ahead, you go ahead and lead them, maybe there wouldn't have been an attack. But, on or challenged, Farnsworth would lead his men to combat. The charge actually might have worked if they had went in a different direction, but because of the terrain, the regiment would break up into three parts. Farnsworth would have two horses shot from under him before being riddled with shots from the 15th Alabama at close range. Now, there are some reports that Farnsworth ended his own life because of his wounds and to evade capture. He was especially hated by rebel cavalry because he had killed the rebel horsemen wounded and trapped by his horse. This is probably not true, though, as the accounts that record this were from rebels, and they were not actually in the vicinity of where he fell. As it was, Colonel Oates of the 15th, who had engaged Chamberlain the previous day, would take his personal letters. While Farnsworth was charging, Merritt would probe up the Emmitsburg Road. Vander Law is able to shift some units to check his advance, but there was a real opportunity for the cavalry to turn the flank, and many of the rebels to rout. While this maybe would not have worked out quite that way, it would have made the Confederate July 3rd even worse than it already had been. There was also some action at Fairfield between the 6th U.S. Cavalry, dispatched by Merritt, although the regiment was not at full strength, which brings us to the question as why they were dispatched in the first place. The 6th was told that there were Confederate supply wagons nearby, which could have been a trap laid by the rebels. Instead of an easy capture, they would run into the 7th and 11th Virginia from Grumble Jones's brigade, finally moving up to join the army. The mountain passes would still be crucial, and there would be one near Fairfield, so this makes sense. While the 6th would see some success in driving the Confederates, eventually they would be overwhelmed by superior numbers, suffering some 60% casualties two sergeants in the 6th would receive the Medal of Honor, though, during the engagement. So, with that, the cavalry action having concluded, we are finally going to bring the Battle of Gettysburg to a close. But fear not, because while we have the battle taken care of, we need to wrap up the crucial days immediately following the engagement. Of course, as always, we will have a full wrap on the significance and analysis of the battle as well, so stay tuned. Additionally, we need to look somewhere other than the east, we need to put a final word in for Vicksburg. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, and as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.